0: Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Ali Lada. Ali, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on.
0: Great to have you here. So I I just have to start off with this. I found you on Twitter. I checked out your website. And you have like the greatest website. It's almost like you took the perfect template and just were like, okay, vertical CPA, we're going to do this. And every single aspect of your site is like bang on. So When I saw your Twitter and I saw the site, I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. You're doing something right. So let's just start there. What's your background? What's your company? And how did you get into this whole Twitter universe?
1: Right, right. You know what? So it's a a bit of a long story, but I'll backtrack. I started my career in the financial crisis. So I'm like a millennial, just like I'm sure you are. I don't know. You look fairly young. (laughs) Um, Started my career in accounting, worked for one of the big four accounting firms in Toronto. Did that for three years. And believe it or not, I actually hated it. I hated my life. I hated accounting. I was like, how can anyone do this for 25 years? It sucks. In retrospect, I worked in audit, which is, you know, an aspect of accounting that I just didn't like. So I was looking for a way out and then landed on trying to go into like front office finance. So like working in capital markets. At the time, a career in like investment banking, something in finance. Seemed like it was very sexy and it paid quite well. So I decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to do next. But moving from audit to finance isn't such an easy move. It requires you to take like a few steps in between. So what I did was I moved over to Deloitte, worked in their like consulting arm for a little while, where I built up some transferable skills, if you could. Know and then I used those skills to then get myself a job in finance. So I ended up working in equity research. So equity research is essentially the part of the bank that basically it's the individuals that research stocks. If you've ever followed the markets and seen buy, sell, hold recommendations, that department is usually the bank's equity research department that comes up with those recommendations. So I did that for three years at uh, the Bank of Montreal, one of the bigger banks here in Toronto or in Canada. Did that, liked it, exciting career, decided that I wanted something a bit different. So in 2019, I actually got a job at Apple right here in Toronto at their headquarters for the country, for Canada. And what I was working there was basically working in financial planning and analytics. So basically my job in essence was to figure out how to increase iPhone sales in the Canadian market. And how do you do that? You usually what you do is you take the company's money, so Apple's money, you co-invested with some of the carriers, so Rogers, Bell, Telus, and you run promotions. And basically, anytime these promotions run, like demand for iPhones is like this, so very straight line, you know, and then it spikes when you, you do a promotion because customers can see, okay, the iPhone's on sale. So it, it was all about creating these spikes in sales so that we could drive more iPhone sales in the country. <laughs> so that was essentially my job. During the pandemic, you know, I'm sure everybody did this, but it was a time for me to just sit back and reevaluate what I wanted to do in my career. Started doing that because I had free time. And funny enough, I decided, you know, I've always wanted to work for myself. It's just, you live in Toronto, you know. In Toronto, I don't know, there is this thing about the culture here. People just get a job and they tend to work. It's not very entrepreneurial like the West Coast is. You know, I feel like in San Fran, if I grew up in San Fran, I would have graduated, maybe worked and started a company. It's like what every kid does there. Like you start a company. In yeah, The, Toronto, the it...
0: default, I was going to say the, the, the default setting here, and I'm sure, it's place, I'm sure it's common. Maybe it is an East Coast thing if you're in New York or if you're in you know, mm-hmm. Chicago, Toronto. The default is you go to work at one of the big companies because a lot of the headquarters just happen to be here. So you grow up seeing them. Oh, I'm going to work there one day. Like They're all over. You don't have entrepreneur as a default.
1: Exactly right. Like It's an East versus West Coast thing. I don't know. So finally decided during the pandemic that, you know what, I'm like in my, you know, I'm in my 30s. It's either now or I never do it. This will be something i you know, I always say, oh, yeah, I want to do it. The timing's not right. But now the pandemic just felt like it was sort of right. You know, I could sort of build up my savings, give this a shot. And if it doesn't work out, hey, I still I worked at Apple. I've worked at BMO. These are awesome companies. I'm sure someone will give me a job somewhere. So I started doing that on the side. I still had my day job. So I was one of those people who's working two jobs at the same time. I was working my day job at Apple from home. And then I started trying to get clients on the side and working on them in the evenings or weekends or whatever. And then funny enough, it just it snowballed pretty quickly. I got my first client who was a friend of mine who went to like raised money from YC and stuff like that. He's got a startup in Toronto his he he sort of introduced me to a couple of his his couple of uh, his friends and then they became clients and then it sort of started to snowball like that and then in september twenty twenty one so about nine months ago now or eight months ago, I was in a position where I could quit my job do this full time so yeah it's been it's been a pretty interesting roller coaster
0: that's awesome so a couple awesome. a couple questions about that so you started off with one customer who was your friend, and then it kind of snowballed, is your background are, are you a certified are you, are you an accountant are you like what what what's your actual educational background?
1: Yeah, no, good question. I skipped over that, but yeah, when I worked at KPMG, I got my CPA, so I'm a CPA by training. I actually got my CFA as well, so two finance accounting designations. okay. I, I, yeah, I got those when I was working at KPMG. So you, and other you had
0: those. And did you, have, did you get those with the thought process that you'd one day do that for a living? Or, or I mean, start do that like as an entrepreneurial journey? Or that was not your thought?
1: That was not my thought. It was, you know, when I went to KPMG, my thought was, okay, yeah, I want to get my CPA because I want to get it. And then I thought I'd stay in accounting for the longer term, but I didn't. And even with my CFA, I thought, you know what? Now I work in finance, I'm going to get this it was never intended to be a tool to then for me to start my own business it just it's funny that it does help right because in order for you to set up an accounting firm it helps that you have a cpa otherwise you really can't you yeah. can't do tax just, cetera, just
0: for right? us laymen's uh, cuz i think yeah. i kind of know this but cpa yeah. uh, so ca is a chartered accountant cpa certified professional accountant and cfa what is a cfa
1: yeah, it's certified financial analyst, essentially. It's basically a lot of finance professionals get the CFA designation. So when we
0: hear the term accountant, what designation is normally associated to that?
1: It's a CA or a CPA.
0: Got it. Yep. Okay. Yep. So yep. You, you, you have a few clients and it's snowballing. What was that tipping point? When did you say, okay, I'm cutting the cord, I'm burning the bridges? <laughs> when, when do you actually quit?
1: It's a good question. I don't think that there is a right answer to that question. It really is up to the individual. I'll be honest with you when I left in September, like the income that I was earning through my company Vertical CPA wasn't enough to replace my job. Like to, let's be honest, when you work at like a company like Apple, you're overpaid. One. They want to make you stay there. Like they they're the big tech companies pay you well to like give up your dreams. They pay you well such that you stay there. They're not dumb. They're not dumb. You're paid well in order for you to do that, to shut up and just keep going. And a lot of people there, they just that's exactly what they do. They, they've landed a job there. They're like, look, whenever I go to a party, I tell people I work at Apple. It sounds awesome. I get instant <laughs> credibility, right? People instantly think you're smart and you get paid well. So it's, you really have no reason to leave.
0: That's the greatest um, recruitment strategy. We're going to pay you so well that you're going to give up your dreams. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's exactly what they do. So, I mean, I knew that. So it got to a point where, you know, the income I thought was, okay, this is enough for me to survive off of. And I can kind of see, and this is sort of the crazy thing about being an entrepreneur. You're like, I don't know where my next clients will come, but they will come at some point. <laughs> you kind of have to trust yourself. And yeah, it turned out to be okay. Funny enough, what I, what I want to add to the story is that in January of this year, I actually bought someone else's accounting practice. So I bought a business as well. So that was quite helpful too, because I was able to take my own clients, add all of these new clients as well. And then you just keep adding clients as you start to market yourself, you grow your firm, et, et cetera, naturally.
0: Okay, wait now, a buddy, minute. That, that's yeah. a huge hack. Okay, so yeah, you it, bought somebody else's accounting firm. I'm going to guess... I, you didn't, I didn't know this before, but I'm going to guess it was someone who was retiring and they needed to hand off their business. Is that what it was?
1: That's correct. Yes. She was essentially leaving the business because of health issues. So she decided to sell her business. Funny enough, maybe I'll backtrack a bit here because initially that was going to be my strategy. Even before I started my own practice, I thought, you know what? Why don't I look to buy someone else's practice instead of starting at zero, right? Like you, you, you maybe follow some of the SMVB sure. folks on Twitter and they all say, you know what? Instead of starting from zero, just buy someone else's business. And I'll run I had John cash Wilson a them. couple
0: weeks ago. So we, 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 we covered this.
1: <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, there you go. So initially, I wanted to buy someone else's business, but it's much easier for you to buy someone's business once you set up your own practice and you kind of get it going and have a few clients. People, a lot of sellers look at you as someone who has credibility, who has done it, right? So they're willing to sell you because it's the game as well. Like a lot of the sellers, they want to sell their practice as someone who's established. They want to make sure that their clients are being, being taken care of. So, so I set up my own practice to also sort of look better to a lot of people who are selling their practices. And you know what? In that time when I was looking for a practice to buy, it took me six or seven months. What I also learned was, and this was something you don't see as an employee, because as an employee, you always think that starting a business is so hard. Where am I going to get my first customers? But whenever I was talking to a lot of these people who are selling their accounting practices, what I consistently noticed was, number one, they do quite okay for themselves. They do well. Number two, they're not that smart. So... So that gave me a lot of confidence. It's like if this person can do it, why can't I do it? You know? Yeah. So that was that was a big confidence booster and a lot of people I think get stuck because they're like, well, how the hell do you start this? Like what's so what's the trick behind this? And at the end of the day, there's no trick really. Like you just have to start and then it it's will come from It's just brute slowly.
0: force. It's so funny that you say that and you're you're giving off all these great one-liners. I'm typing them out as you say them. So <laughs> But I'll be honest with you, and and I'm not saying this as some kind of platitude. I was really not that smart in high school, didn't get good grades in high school and college. And I was, and one of my really good friends, I have a lot of good friends who are like really smart. Like their calling card was they were the A plus student. You always mm-hmm. knew they were gonna be the best. And for the most part, the, those types of people are the ones who have really good, steady nine to five jobs working at big companies, and the people yeah. like me are entrepreneurs with big businesses making loads of money. It was hard to work up to it and, you, and it took time. But I am not the smart guy in the room. I'm the guy that just gets shit done. And, and that's, that's the calling card of an entrepreneur. But you're bang on. People that are like really, really smart, or sorry, people that have built great companies are not the smartest people by any means, any stretch no. of the imagination.
1: No, no. And it's funny, you tend to think that, right? That there's some sort of a trick. There really isn't. And a lot of these, like, it's funny, you know, in accounting, you mentioned my website and stuff. Like, that was on purpose because I know that a lot of other accountants don't spend any money on marketing. They don't do shit. They're not on Twitter. They don't do marketing, yet they still land clients. And that's the crazy part. Like, this industry's nuts, right? Like, they do, they give shitty customer service. Like, I have a story about my dad that we can go into later, but the customer service in accounting is shit. They don't do marketing. So if you can just kind of, You know, distinguish yourself from the other the other competition. Like you already have an advantage.
0: That's it. So I want okay. I want to talk about your website now because this was like top of my list. I want to definitely get into how you purchased and sourced and paid for an accounting firm. But we'll 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 do that right after this. Okay. So for those people who are listening, verticalcpa.ca. Let me just give you a quick kind of overview of what I'm seeing, and then I I want you to kind of take it down. So top of the (laughs) site, first of all. Great color palette, super clear, top of the site. Outsource your accounting today, request a callback. Like clear value proposition. Enter your information here. You scroll down, you got a video of yourself, trusted by, and then a bunch of logos. Then this is a killer. You've got all these Google testimonials that just scroll by the screen. Happy customers, more stuff about your clients, and then you have content, blogs, videos, you know, more good stuff. So as I scroll down this page, I'm looking at it, I'm saying, wow, this guy just nailed his web design. It's not that it's, it's, it's a good looking site, but it's not like overly polished. It's really simple and it's just got all the elements. So A, how did you do this? And was this your first attempt or was this a ton of optimization?
1: So I'm constantly changing my website. And that's the one thing I've learned. Your website, especially for me, you know, since I run a remote firm, that is like the front of my store. So I got to give it, I got to put in the time, make sure that when someone lands on it, it's very clear what I do. And I'm all about, like, maybe you, you follow me on Twitter. I'm all about simplifying stuff, especially when it comes to accounting and finance. It's all about, you're not there to give your client jargon. They don't understand it. Like You're not there to do that. You're there to like simplify and make it easy for them to understand. That's my job, like to communicate my value prop and what I do very, very clearly. So yeah, it's been a lot of iteration. A lot of iteration, a lot of sort of looking at other industries and companies and then sort of emulating what they do and trying to keep it very simple. Like even what, some what's of the
0: this stuff... On Sorry, just, just on that point, what, what's this like? Is there a certain industry or company or area that you looked at to get... Because a lot of people, honestly, Ali, they don't yeah. do the testimonial. Like the Google testimonials is killer. And, yeah. and like just even that, what, are, are there any reference points you can give listeners where they can look?
1: To be honest, that one might have been the guy who designed my website said, you might want to include this. And I said, yeah, 100%. Because I think what, I, what I'm trying to do with my website is it's really hard for somebody to you know, go ahead and make a purchase, especially when it comes to services and stuff like that. So what I'm trying to do is trying to basically alleviate any objection that they have. So you can see the companies I work with. Those are my clients. You can see what other people are telling me. You can watch my content so you get to know who I am. So that way, you know, you're comfortable talking to me. You've sort of seen my videos. You know how what, by what I sound like, who I am, all of this stuff. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sort of reduce all of those barriers so that you go ahead and fill in that form and ask for a callback.
0: Amazing. And then the pricing page, you've got yep. gold, silver, bronze, and the top... Or sorry, the bottom package is 600 a month. And then the other ones are call for pricing. How did you even come up with the idea of I'm going to put a pricing package together, almost like you're a software company and it's just got all the things in there? So it's like, oh, click here to buy. Okay. Thank you. Ooh, yeah. why, why that versus like just, you know, call for pricing?
1: It's a really good one. Like the accounting firm in general, and you'll see a lot of like more modern firms do what I do, they're sort of switching to more of a value pricing model whereby. You kind of hire a part-time accountant and they do certain things for you every month and that's what you pay them for. As opposed to, hey, John, I'm going to bill you hourly. And it's like, okay, Ali, I need you to do my bookkeeping for me. And you're like, okay, well, I'll bill you hourly. So you're like, well, how much is this going to cost then? Especially for a startup, it's like, well, will this be 10 hours? Will this be 20 hours? You know, what is this? It's much better value proposition for a lot of my startup clients, et cetera, that, hey, I'm going to charge you 600 bucks a month. And this is what I will achieve for you, regardless of how many hours it takes. So that way you have predictability because you know what you're going to pay me. It's not going to be some stupid number that comes out of the blue once I spend like 30 hours. But it's very predictable for you. And it's predictable for me too, right? I know exactly how much I'm getting paid every month, what my objective is. And I'm trying to give a lot of clients just certainty about how much they have to pay so that they can manage their cash flow as well.
0: Yeah. And this is... It's brilliant, not only for the clients, but also for you. Because for you, it's like, okay, this client's paying me 600 bucks a month. I can just forecast my revenues now for the next 12 months, probably the next 4 or 5 years, realistically. Exactly.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And so again, yes, 100%. It becomes like a SaaS business, right? It becomes... Even for me to make the jump from like employee to entrepreneur, it's so much easier because it's kind of like I've built in a salary for me, you know? It's very predictable. Yeah. I know people are going to pay me next month and how much they're going to pay me. So it's really good in that regard.
0: Okay, and I, I got to say like the fact that you just started, I mean you've been an entrepreneur for like 2 2 years. It took me 10 years to figure out like what you figured out in 2 years. So kudos to you. I appreciate um,
1: that.
0: Yeah. And then and then like services onboarding, I won't go through the whole site, but the other question I have is so how do you scale this business? Are you already I don't know where you are in your journey, but like are you already outsourcing work? Are you bringing on employees? Do you have contractors? How do you actually manage the workload?
1: That's a really good question. And to be honest, something I'm learning and struggling with right now, service businesses are inherently hard to scale. I don't know how, if you've ever you know, come up with a service business, but it's very people-based. A lot of the, the bookkeeping work, the tax work, you can come up with templates and processes and sort of scale that. You, know, you can hire people, etc. and templatize it. But like some of the stuff that I also do tends to be financial projections and financial modeling for a lot of my clients. That stuff is a lot harder to scale. Because first of all, my team is myself and two senior bookkeepers. So the bookkeepers are great because they can do some of the tax stuff. They can do the bookkeeping stuff, obviously. But when it comes to more of the subjective stuff like company planning, forecasting, a lot of that knowledge stays with me. And I'm still trying to figure out, well, how do I replicate another one of the, you know, Can I get somebody who's got this expertise and then maybe hire them to do this? So that's the part I'm trying to, trying to figure out and scale. But I would say one of the parts of the business, like the tax and bookkeeping stuff, is pretty scalable because once you get volume, you can just hire someone and then just keep adding that way.
0: Absolutely. So in, I mean, my background is in building service businesses, mostly in media Podcasts, social media, things like that. And I'm sure it's very different because you're in a much more skilled, for lack of a better word, skilled profession. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of education to do what you do. What's worked for us generally is breaking down every job into its smallest pieces. So it's like, you know, yes, you need someone with this certification to do, to go from A to Z on this, but A, B, C, D, E, you know, M through O and then like P, you know, those things can all be outsourced and then kind of brought together and then reviewed by the high level person. They don't need to spend their time doing all that. So for us, it's been about kind of breaking every task down into its micro tasks and saying, okay, what pieces of this can be outsourced versus what do you know our team members need to do themselves. So I mean, that's the simple version of how we've done it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it sounds like what you're doing now is it's working for you anyhow.
1: Yeah. I like what you said there. And I think this is really important for me too. It's all about documenting a lot of the processes, especially in a service-based business, right? Because for me, like I think the test is if I'm on vacation or something, it still needs to run, right? The business still needs to run. It can't be such that a procedure is in my head and it's not written down and therefore my staff can't do it. And I think that's the ultimate test where I'm trying to break down every single thing I do for each of my clients into like baby steps such that anybody can just step in and do it again. Yeah. Um, and that's the key I tend to find.
0: Yeah. So our thing, and I've talked about this before on, on the podcast and on Twitter, is we have um, video training libraries. So we run mm-hmm. a remote business also. And when we hire someone, let's say in sales or in client services or whatever it is, we have like literally... I don't know. I think, I think our sales training module is like 45 videos now. And every video oh, wow. is like, you know, how do you Salesforce? How to write a contract, and so, but putting it does take time, and you kind of do it over time. But I always just say to entrepreneurs, just record yourself, just like turn on your yeah. camera and record yourself doing everything. It's like, okay, I'm going to look over a balance sheet. Here's how I do it. This is what I look for. That's sort of how we've done it. But, but yeah, man, like seems like you're for where you are in your time, where you are on your journey. You're you're scaling really nicely. So I appreciate that.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, John.
0: So let me ask you a few more questions about about this and then we'll we'll go on. Actually, let's let's jump over to the um to how you kind of made the acquisition. So you started off, what metric did you have in your mind, whether it was customers or revenue or hours worked before you said, Okay, I'm ready to ingest another company now?
1: So in September, when I left Apple, my business was doing like a little over hundred thousand in revenue. So I had, you know, so I was like, okay, there's proof of concept here. That's why I left my job. And I was like, yeah, this is enough to make myself an income. And I think it was then that once I had my website, and I could look very credible to a lot of sellers, so a lot of people who are selling their accounting practices, that I started to get more matches. So I was using a broker and you know, they sort of match you with another someone who's looking to sell their practice. I got a few more matches then. And it just seemed like, It just made sense, you know. It was sort of the right timing because I was big enough. I understood the business enough. I was doing this full time now. I was no longer doing my job. So I was like, okay, this is a good time for me to be able to sort of look at somebody's practice and take them in. Funny enough, you know, it's been what almost six months—not even six months—that I've had the the practice I purchased. But it's funny, man. You know, I've never done an acquisition, but to take you through play by play, like. I totally understand when people go into a company, they buy it and then they let go of customers, staffing changes, et cetera. And I'm like, why is there so much commotion once you do an acquisition? Like, why are they letting go of customers, like staffing changes? But I would totally get it, man. I totally get why that happens. Some customers are just not a good fit. Like, some of the clients I bought were just not a good fit. So I've had to let them go. Some of your staff, because you're a new owner, they have like, you know, it wasn't a change they were expecting. So for them, it's a really big change. So some people decide to leave or they go take another job, which is acceptable. Some other staff people are just not a good fit. So like now I totally understand the whole commotion that happens when an acquisition occurs. Why it's so like, there's so much like activity after a while. I totally get it. Because you as a new owner, you're trying to jive your culture with what you just bought. And that's never easy. It's always uh challenging.
0: How do you make sure that you don't totally destroy what you just bought and annihilate the value of it while making those changes?
1: So, so here, I'll, I'll give you the story. So I knew, so the firm that I purchased, it was doing a certain number in revenue. And I thought, naively thought that, oh yeah, it's going to stay the same. And then you know what, I'll just increase it by adding clients to my own practice. And then I'll have this big business after. But instead what happened was the practice I purchased, I let go of clients. So it so it's actually went down. I was able to increase pricing on some clients, but it's still down. But my business grew a lot further than what I thought. So overall, I'm ahead. But it's funny how I naively thought initially when I did this, I thought, oh yeah, the revenue will stay the same and I'll just keep adding. But it's not like that. It's not like that. I think there's no way, like the value destruction will happen if some clients aren't a good fit. The old, old owner was okay servicing them, but I'm not. They're just not a good fit for me. So I mean, you know, it's, it's not like, they left. So I didn't have attrition, which is a good thing because attrition is the worst thing in a business, right? It tells you customers are unhappy. But no, the customers wanted to stay. It's more of me kicking them out. So, right. so I was... Uh, yeah. And I was telling, I was talking to my friend about this. And he's like, I told him, look, I bought this business and I lost so many clients. And he's like, dude, you did this to yourself. So why are you complaining? And he was absolutely right. I, I did it to myself. I kicked out people I didn't like. So I was like, oh, I, th- I, I sort of sat back and thought about it again. And I'm like, yeah, okay. All right.
0: Aren't service businesses, though, very relationship driven? The difference between buying a product company is mm-hmm. like, if I drink this brand of you know, orange juice, I don't really care who owns it. But the relationship I have with my accountant, with my hairdresser, with my doctor, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little different just saying, hey, I'm your accountant now. Well, what happened to, to James I was dealing with for the last 13 years? How do you? Is that did that come up a lot, or did you or did you get around that quickly?
1: It did. It definitely did come up. The good thing I had going for me was that the old owner stayed with the business for about a month and a half, and then she was able to you know sort of make a, a sort of a warm handoff with a lot of clients. Tell them why she was leaving. You know, tell telling them to stay with me. Trust me that I'm qualified because of this and that reason. So that definitely helped. Because you're absolutely right. If that didn't happen, then some clients would have been like, Okay, I don't know who this guy is. Peace out. I'm going to go to someone else. So that definitely helped. To and make and did you transition really.
0: the model? I'd imagine she didn't have the model you have, which is like a monthly subscription fee. She probably had more of just an hourly fee. Is that right?
1: So she did have the monthly... She was started doing it. It was monthly too. Yeah, I actually looked for a firm that was very similar to mine. Maybe her website and stuff in her marketing wasn't up to snuff, which is fine. I mean, that's something I can fix. But yeah, she already had this. So it was good for me because it seemed like a bit of a, a natural fit in that regard.
0: Yeah. Could you like, could this become a major part of your growth strategy? Are you planning to go out and buy a dozen of these uh, other accounting firms?
1: It's a good question. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing something like this. <laughs> May possibly. Like my brother, uh, funny enough, he works in private equity and they, a lot of those sort of firms roll up like dental practices, vets, et cetera, et cetera. I have been thinking about this, but maybe doing it towards like bookkeeping and tax because that side of the business is much more scalable. So maybe looking for another bookkeeping firm would be something I'd be willing to do. But you know what? I just bought this one. So I'm going (laughs) to take a bit of a break and then think about this again. But yes, I'm open to doing something like that.
0: That that's interesting, and just going back to what we were saying before, how do you scale it? If you divide up the stuff that is scalable, like that's more commodity focused, like okay, you know, doing bookkeeping for a business that does you know whatever five hundred thousand to two million in revenue, you know, that we can stack up. And if you want to do you know deep financial analysis for ten million dollar plus companies, that's not going to be like a super scalable thing, but they're going to be high ticket. Customers. Correct.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. You're yeah. absolutely right. You, you figured out my business. That's exactly yeah. well, listen,
0: I, like I, I wasn't kidding. When I saw your website, I was like, oh, I got to talk to this guy. This is too good. So I, I'm, I'm glad that my thoughts on this actually kind of make sense. So a couple more questions on the acquisition. So, how, how did you figure out pricing? And were there any creative models that you use to actually pay for it? You can start with pricing. Like, was it just a simple structure?
1: Good question. So, usually the way accounting firms and bookkeeping firms sell, it's usually a multiple of revenue. So usually 1.1 it could be 1.6 times revenue, so something like that. So I bought a mine for 1.4 times revenue. In terms of financing, so what they, what the broker and what the seller obviously want is no at risk financing. So no vendor takebacks, no sellers, note, nothing like that. It's like guaranteed funds upfront, which kind of sucks for you as a buyer, right? Because you can't do like a VTB or an earnout or something like that. But I mean, it was fine because funny enough, the terms that a bank gives you on an accounting firm are really, really, really good. So my financing terms are, I put zero equity, so 0% down. I just financed the whole thing, which I didn't know that you could do this with an accounting firm. What? Yeah. So usually, yeah, whenever like, you're a private equity buyer, you want to buy a business, it's whatever, 30, 20% down and you got to get a loan for the rest. Accounting firms, you can leverage the whole thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So crazy. I knew that with, a, with, with dental firms. So my, my sister in law is yeah. a dentist. And I remember her telling me that when she you know, started her own dental practice, she had to spend <clears throat> a ton of money on equipment. And like dental equipment is not cheap opening up a dental mm. clinic. And she financed 100% of it. And, and apparently, like every bank does this, like dental clinics are really safe bets. I had no idea it was the same with accounting firms. Or was that like easy to do like once you figured it out like the first bank you went to did it or did you have to do some digging and 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 that's that sort of thing
1: i did do a little bit of digging i mean some of the banks weren't giving me good terms like in canada what, what do we have like 5 bmo you know td yeah. cibc scotia bank and rbc i spoke to like national montreal and then td td gave me the by far the best terms for whatever reason. I don't know. And I guess they, they do this quite frequently. They have an entire practice dedicated towards this. And yeah, very similar, I guess, to, yeah, to your sister's experience, wow. whereby they finance the whole thing. I guess this is how they do professional services. Because they think they're very like good businesses. The owners generally make decent income. So they're like, yeah. You That's real. And 100%. so could
0: you... So is, is the M&A model here then mm-hmm. very scalable? I mean, couldn't you buy... I don't know t- ten of these if there's a zero down, I mean you want to have some time to ingest them and make sure that they're integrating properly, but it seems like if money isn't a barrier and you know how to operate these things well, that seems like 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 a, like a like a pretty good growth path, right
1: I think so, yeah, and that that was honestly the plan. like I bought this one, and then you know what I'm gonna try and look for another one to see if it's a good fit, et cetera, and then yeah, try do the same thing, but I think, awesome. think it is very possible to do that,
0: yeah. So let's, let's talk about Twitter. When did you get onto Twitter and how did you kind of make that a megaphone for yourself?
1: So I got on Twitter after I quit my job. So after Apple, so like October, September, October-ish. I took a, an audience building course, the one by uh, Sahel Bloom on, on Twitter. Yeah. So his course basically... I've always thought of having some sort of a marketing platform. I don't know why I landed on Twitter. I do like, you know, I feel like you get smarter on Twitter because there's so many smart people on the platform, like tweeting good stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of garbage as well, but that's any social media. It really depends on who you follow. Took his course and I thought, okay, a lot of his course is about, you know, finding your niche and things like that. So I thought, I like the personal development stuff. I like tweeting about business. I know a lot about accounting. And then, in terms of just content strategy i thought okay since i know a lot about accounting and i think i'm pretty good at simplifying things why don't i do this because my my fear was if i pick a topic that i'm not very familiar with i might run out of ideas and then it would be tough to sort of keep tweeting to keep writing threads etc simply because like i'd have to do research i'd have to get familiar with it i might lose credibility cuz i'm not an expert in this area but like accounting and finance is something i've done for like you know, the better part of like 10 years in my career. So I thought, I can do this. And I think although this stuff is boring, a lot of people think this stuff is boring, I can make it interesting, <laughs> or yeah. I can at least simplify it and give people value. And that's, that's my whole shtick. It's all about simplifying accounting and finance concept and giving people value, making them think that a lot of this stuff is actually not that complicated when you, you explain it well. And...
0: Was it always like you were going to do a Twitter on something that you were also going to be running a business on? Because obviously, it makes total sense if you're running an accounting business, you're Ali, the CFO on Twitter, everything you talk about is obviously related to your business. I'm guessing that was part of the strategy. I mean, if you were going to talk about sports because you love sports, that would have no impact on your business. So was part of the strategy, this needs to be a funnel to drive demand to my business?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I never... When I started my Twitter account, I didn't think about linking the two, but it so happened that, okay, I'm tweeting about accounting and finance. Let me just put my website here too. It just works. Um, absolutely. So yeah. So yeah, it worked yeah. nicely for sure.
0: Anything else you did? I think when I started following you, you had like 30,000-ish followers. You're at almost 51,000 now. So your, your growth is, is pretty spectacular. Anything else? So obviously, finding a personal brand is an important one. Anything else you think you've done that's helped you grow?
1: I think, you know, Twitter, somebody told me this on Twitter, it's it's meant to be a social media platform. So interact with people, you know, reach out to people, DM, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of like the way you and I sort of met as well. I think it's all about that. Just reach out to people. Don't be afraid. Yeah, some people are too busy to respond, but that's okay. But just try to reach out to as many people as you can and build your following that way and just get to meet people. And you'd be surprised. There's some really cool people in the world doing some really cool things. Yeah, um, I regret not doing this sooner. To be honest, I the regret truth not is, doing though,
0: there are so many people that I've met because, like, I, if you look at my Twitter, I started I, my account went live in like 2009 or something, and mm-hmm. I literally didn't log in for a decade, you know. <laughs> and then I logged in, I think, for the first time in like I, I just started actively tweeting in February of this year, so February yeah. 2022. You know, and and here we are in June and it's been fun. And, but I'll tell you, my biggest surprise has been actually the people that I've met because my, at first, my thought was like, okay, I'll just start tweeting and maybe I'll, you know, have an audience, whatever. And I've been for 10 years, I've been in the influencer marketing business. So I I know a lot of big influencers who have done cool things. But my biggest surprise on Twitter has actually been not the content I put out, but the content I've learned. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of your threads, honestly, in finance, as you've said, they're designed to be really simplified financial stuff and that's the only financial stuff I understand because I'm a little bit challenged. So when I read your stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm actually learning things on here that I don't learn in school, that I didn't learn in school, that I have never, you know, been told by my accountant. So I I actually think that that the value prop of following you is really high for a business owner.
1: I appreciate that. No, and and you know what? And the same goes to like, you know, I follow some other people who are good writers or they're good marketers. And same thing. Like I don't know anything about marketing. I'm a finance professional. But you learn so much, right? And you're like, wow, okay, no, this actually makes sense. I saw this ad and I actually bought this product and here's why I did it. Right. And it's really, really good. It's not to say that all the information that you're going to consume is correct. But a lot of it certainly tells you, okay, maybe this is where I should dig more. or Here's something I should learn more about. It's really yeah. good that way. It's really, really good.
0: I think I saw that you were doing something with 10K Diver.
1: I am. So that was something totally unexpected. He actually reached out to me because he wanted to do a course for a lot of sort of people who struggle to understand finance when it pertains to when it comes to running a business or trying to invest in a company, things like that. So him and I are going to be creating a course to basically help a lot of entrepreneurs, investors figure out, OK, what does it mean when you lo- you're looking at a company and it's doing well financially? How do you? How, what do these financial terms basically mean when you're running a business or you're looking to understand a business? It's basically personal finance, but for business owners is what I what I'd say it is. So yeah, we're gonna be launching that in September. So looking looking forward to it. I had no intentions of la- launching a course this year. I thought, yeah, you know, maybe down the road, I'm growing my business and stuff. But once he reached out to me, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm down. Let's let's just That's
0: so cool. So you 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 guys are building and this is at 10K diver. And so you guys are launching a course together. And do you do do you see Twitter and kind of the course business or whatever else you go into? Do you actually seeing that being kind of a, a major part of your income stream or is it just recreational right now? You'll see where it goes
1: recreational right now but I definitely do want to make it big and I think it could be it could be like it could be a pretty big property in three or three or four years because I think um it's funny now I started the accounting business and that's one company but just like you you know I think eventually I want to have a media company with my like my twitter the course maybe some youtube as well which I'm trying to work on and that will be a media company and funny enough, like I think the media company longer term will be much more valuable than the accounting firm cuz the media company is a brand. You know, it's me. Whatever I do next after the accounting firm, I feel like the media company can help me sell it. You know, it becomes my megaphone the way I market stuff. It's really really important.
0: You're like full full of gems today. That's so so true. People who build businesses and those businesses have great value, you can hold them or you can sell them. But the nice thing about having... And this is a mistake a lot of influencers or uh, creators make, and I've seen it happen over the years, is Mm. they'll build a business that is all about themselves. And the way to do it, in my opinion, is use your megaphone to build a business, sell the business, keep the megaphone, and then do it again. Because the megaphone itself can't really be sold. It's you. You're not going to sell yourself. right? But if you use the platform to build other things, like you're doing right now, frankly, with Vertical CPA... It's like, you know, eventually you could, if you wanted to, you could sell that and start something new. You still have the audience that you've always had. So that, that's the way to do Correct.
1: it. Yeah, 100%. I, yeah. I feel like in today's like noisy world where there, you know, you have thousands of things coming at you, having an audience is like one of the most important things for you to have.
0: So true. So let, let's wrap up with a few lessons. I think you were going to, you wanted to share a story about your dad. And I think it was in the, in the area that I wanted to talk about, which is what, what do you think? Business owners who are listening now could take just from what you've learned in your short time, and you've done a lot of things really well. What do you think are are kind of some common mistakes that are standing in the way of someone kind of just scaling the, their business up?
1: Scaling or or even starting, I'd say, you know, there is uh, the first step is always the hardest, and I think that was for me too. And for years, I worked as an employee, like you know, at like the bank or the accounting firm, etc. I had a very cushy job, but like I was saying in the beginning. That first step is always the hardest, but it's so necessary for you to just get over that hump. And then I assure you that whatever, whatever step number two is, step number three, those things you can just figure out and, and you know as you go along. I feel like that first step is one of the hardest. So as long as you can take that one or break it down and make it small enough for you to be able to take that first step and take that risk, then yes, try and do that so you can sort of get the ball rolling on whatever it is that you're trying to do. Well um, said. Okay. Yeah, 100%. I feel like a lot of people get stuck on on, on that step. So did I. I did too. Oh, totally. I put it off. I had excuses. I said, this is why I'm not going to do this. I'm not ready. Blah, 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 blah.
0: Well, they, they also... I think just adding to that, people have a fear of all the things that could go wrong. A, they totally discount or they, or they don't see the massive benefits. So it's like, yeah, you could... You, know, you actually phrased it pretty nicely at the beginning, which is, The worst, worst that can happen is I fall on my face and I get a job exactly where I am right now anyways. So Mm -hmm. the worst case scenario is I'm back where I am right now, which isn't terrible. And I'm doing it again in two years and I can take another shot after that. The best case scenario is, as you said, you, you drop what you have, you start a business. It's growing. You acquire another business, you build an audience and then you're sailing. You know, at a certain point, you kind of pick up enough momentum where you actually can afford to have some losses. I mean, just like you said, your business has been doing so well that even with the things that didn't go well in the acquisition, you still grew because you, you had enough momentum going in. Do you feel secure today? Like, I don't know, as an entrepreneur, we always have a certain amount of paranoia. Do you still kind of... I don't know. Do you ever ever have those really worrying moments or, or certain challenges that you say, okay, I've really got to overcome this, this is a huge problem right now?
1: I still have the paranoia but I think that never goes away you know as an entrepreneur but I would say this your point about the upside it's way way bigger when you work for yourself the thing that you have to remember as an employee is you're not really in control of your destiny you know if a company is going through layoffs or whatever especially in times like today you know you see some of the headlines like Coinbase etc yeah. you could be <laughs> let go yeah you could be let go at any time and i feel like that is That is the one thing about employment that isn't appreciated is that there is a crazy downside to that as well. Anytime somebody could just tell you, hey, we're doing cuts, we're going to have to let you go. And then then what do you do when that happens, especially if you're in like your your 40s, your 50s? It's so hard. I mean, it's so much harder. It's not impossible, but it's so much harder to then start again. So I'm like, well, why don't you just fire yourself and just start your own thing now and then just let that build? (laughs) Right?
0: Yeah. I, I always find it ironic. Like I, I bought a, I bought a property a, a year and a half ago and the hoops that the bank puts me through to get a mortgage, and it's like, look at the assets in my bank account, look at the stock market, look at this, look at that, you know, and look at the fact that I've been an entrepreneur for ten years, ten years plus, and you're saying that I'm less secure financially than someone who gets, you know, paid with a paycheck, who, by the way, is at any given time two weeks away from having zero income. Correct. Correct. You know, and if something you know if something terrible happened, if something went wrong with my with my business, chances are within two three months I'd figure it out and be doing something else. While Correct. while that guy would still be looking for a job, so it's kind of funny how they how they look at it.
1: It's it's so true. It's it's stupid how your employee, because they have a salary, could get a mortgage, but you as the owner can't. <laughs> that makes no sense.
0: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. You know, no
1: it's,
0: it's funny. I actually this is uh, well, one more thing I'll say. I, it's funny. I actually had an experience. This really happened where. They were like, you don't qualify, like your salary, your T4 salary, which in Canada is, I guess, the W5 or whatever they call it. You know, your, your income doesn't qualify for the mortgage you're getting. I said, okay, do you want me to go into my accounting software and just increase my income for a few months? Like, I, I can do that. I, I can give myself twice the salary if that'll make me feel better. Uh, you know, so it's like, you know, I, I, I feel like people who work at banks don't, don't appreciate necessarily what the entrepreneur class is doing.
1: No, 100%. 100%. It's funny. Yeah. It is really stupid.
0: All right, guys. Make sure to follow Ali, the CFO, on Twitter. Anything else you, you want to talk about, man? Any, you, you want to plug, rather?
1: No, that's it. I appreciate it, man. Uh, glad This was a great talk. Thanks, thanks, John.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or a review on Apple and Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. helps other people find the show, and it lets us know that we're doing something right.